Living off the grid, we've all thought about doing it once or twice. Nothing like quitting your 9 to 5, packing it up, and leaving it all behind. But when you're nestled so far out, where nobody can hear you scream, be careful who you invite into your home. Welcome back, everyone. As always, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti. We're on season one, episode five. 2021 is already not off to a great start, but tonight I have something special for you. We're going to be taking a trip to a town in Georgia. A home invasion in the middle of nowhere. Tale as old as time, right? Well, the story I'm about to tell you consists of two lovers, 12,000 doses of LSD, a hand-built hermetic castle in the Georgian wilderness, a stained glass window of Bohemian, a pink room, and two bull massives named Beelzebub and Arsenoth. Told you, things are going to get a little weird. We'll be right back. Hey there, it's your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and I just want to have a quick heart-to-heart with you. Now, you've probably been wanting to start your own podcast, but can't seem to get the ball rolling or you just don't know where to start. And trust me, I get it. There are a lot of options out there. It's almost overload. But today I'm going to tell you about the easiest way, and that is to download the Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to start your own podcast stress-free. No complicated software or membership fees, it's all free. And they'll even distribute it for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can even start earning money right now with no minimum listenership. Download the Anchor app to get started today. Now, let's get back to the show. The place, Somerville, Georgia. The time, December 12th, 1982. On that night, a massacre would take place in the backwoods of Georgia. A gay couple would invite close friends into their home for a party. This was normal for them, but unfortunately, this would be the last party they would ever have. Let's start from the beginning. Charles Scudder was a professor of pharmacology at Loyola University in Chicago. A widowed father to four boys, he lived with his two dogs and a quiet feminine man named Joseph Odom. A fifth grade dropout having spent several years on the wrong side of the law, Odom served as a housekeeper and companion for Scudder. By all accounts, Odom was more than just an employee of Scudder. The two men shared a bed. Charles respected Joseph's street smarts. Charles was book smart and was amazed at the life that Joseph had led. Scudder was described as a member of the Church of Satan who took part in 
psychedelic LSD-based experiments, killed a pet monkey, dyed his hair purple along with another wide array of colors, and owned a pair of human skulls. In all accounts, he sounds like any millennial who lives in a downtown area these days. But this was the 70s. A very different time. So he definitely stood out, described by those who knew him as brilliant, polished, and soft-spoken, but confident. Scudder eventually grew fed up with city life, and in 1976, after his father died and left him a small inheritance, he left the luxury of his Chicago mansion in pursuit of a simpler life. As he put it, Scudder longed for an escape where taxes, light bills, gas bills, water bills, heating bills, and the helpless feeling that resulted from watching as his old neighborhood disintegrated into an urban ghetto. So the 50-year-old chose an isolated spot in the North Georgia woods to begin his new life. I mean, sounds like a plan. What could possibly go wrong? Strange things would begin the moment they came to the property. Upon arrival, Scudder found a dead horse laying across the lone gravel road. Most would take this as an omen to leave, but not Scudder. He named the road Dead Horse Road. Kind of poetic when you think about it now. After living in a camper for two years while constructing a new residence by hand in the depths of the forest, he would finish it quicker than he had anticipated. As Scudder said, within two short years, we were living in an elegant mini-castle. He would famously go on to name it Corpsewood Manor, named for the hauntingly bare autumn trees that dotted the area. Most had died from a snowstorm years before they moved there. They didn't have any electricity, no modern amenities, and they had a chemically treated toilet. So they were definitely off the grid. To complete their country manor, the two added a three-story chicken coop. Their first floor was the poultry and food storage. The second, for canned goods and the couple's pornography collection. And the third for their pink room also known as their pleasure chamber. But Scudder's homosexuality was far from the only secret he'd been hiding, for he was also an official member of the Church of Satan. As it turns out, there was much more to the soft-spoken, secretly Satanist doctor than met the eye. Even at Loyola, Scudder's work was not that of the typical academic. For one, he performed government-funded experiments with mind-altering drugs like LSD. When he left Loyola for Corpsewood Manor, he took a few souvenirs with him, including two human skulls and about 12,000 doses of LSD. Now, souvenirs in hand, Scudder was free to express his Satanism within the confines of Corpsewood Manor. This forest sanctuary was guarded by two mastiffs, Beelzebub and Arzanoth, one named for a demon, the other an H.P. Lovecraft character. 
Local legend adds that the pair also summoned a real demon to assist the dogs in guarding the house. How quaint. Fittingly, Scudder and Odom also decorated Corpsewood Manor with various gothic paraphernalia, including the skulls that Scudder had swiped and a pink gargoyle he had brought from his old mansion. Scudder himself thought of Corpsewood Manor as more like a mausoleum, a tomb, if you will, requiring care, cleaning, and endless costly repairs. Scudder also fashioned a stained glass window adorned with a prophet known as Bohemid, an important figure in the Church of Satan. And while Scudder took his Satanism seriously, it's important to understand what exactly that religion meant to him. Scudder, like other members of the Church of Satan, didn't worship Satan and was instead an atheist who chose to celebrate the base, worldly pleasures that he and other church members felt were denied to humans by the Abrahamic religions. And celebrate such pleasures they did. Scudder and Odom liked to invite guests over for wild sex parties, centered on the pink room. Indeed, painted entirely pink, this pleasure chamber was filled with mattresses, candles, whips, chains, pornography, and even a law book listing guests' sexual desires. But while these acts were reportedly consensual, the pink room parties are the reason that on the night of December 12, 1982, Corpsewood Manor turned into a bloody murder scene. Because Scudder had around 40 acres, it was a popular hunting spot. Him and his boyfriend would get hunters passing through all of the time. That's how he would meet his friend, 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock and Tony West, his 30-year-old roommate. Avery was the first to meet Scudder. He would come to Corpsewood Manor often. Charles and Joseph would make homemade wine and talk to Avery about everything. From philosophical things to sexual things. Soon a sort of mentorship would arise between the two. Avery and Joseph would start hanging out daily. Of course, as we usually see in these types of relationships, a romance would begin to blossom. Some speculated that his boyfriend was in it as well, but it's never been confirmed. Avery would start bringing his roommates over while he hung out with Joseph and his boyfriend. Avery told Charles that Tony was an ex-con and had been charged with shooting his brother-in-law in the back because he got angry that he lost a poker game. Charles told him that it was fine because he didn't judge people. A decision that will come back to bite him. Tony would eventually see that Avery and Charles were more than friends when he would end up seeing them being sexual in the pink room one night. Let's just say Tony was not accepting of it at all. When they got home, Tony began berating Avery, making fun of him and saying, I didn't know you were a faggot. This really got to Avery and made him not want to be himself. Tony really drilled it into him that this was not okay. Because of this, Avery began to despise Charles and Joseph. He went on to even tell Tony that he wanted to kill those two queer devil worshippers and wanted to rob them and take all of the money they had in their home. See, these two believed Charles and Joseph were millionaires. Granted, 
Charles did have money that he inherited from his father, but it was all spent on building the actual home. So Charles and Joseph were, for lack of a better word, broke. But that didn't matter because money had no meaning to them at this time. All they cared about was freedom. But these two didn't realize that. They would soon set a plan in motion that would come to fruition on December 12th. Avery and Tony were hanging out with two friends, Joey Wells and his girlfriend, Teresa Hutchins. These two wanted to go on a date, but had no working car. So that's how they ended up with Tony and Avery. Since everyone lived in the campers and trailers near Corpsewood, everyone knew where the manor was and they knew Avery was friends with him. They were also huffing Tootaloo, which is a combination of alcohol paint, thinner, and glue. They were getting high from this and just messing around. That's when Avery said maybe they should go to Corpsewood. They could have some fun, party, and hunt rabbits. This sounded good to them since they had nothing else better to do. So they hopped in Avery's car and Avery had to stop at his grandma's house to get a rifle so they'd have something to shoot their rabbits with. They get to Corpsewood Manor and of course Charles and Joseph were happy to see them. He gave them all a homemade wine and they sat in the pink room laughing and having a good time. Avery would then leave and say he was going to make more toodaloo and he'd be right back. But this isn't what he was doing, you see. Avery would come back into the pink room and point the gun at Charles's head. Charles was taken aback by this because to his knowledge, him and Avery were good friends. Avery then laughed at him and said, bang, bang. Avery then put the gun down and relaxed a little. Then they began to drink again. Hours passed and soon Tony would get his hands on the rifle. Tony then aimed the rifle at Charles's head and Avery would pull a knife out of his boot and hold it up to Charles's neck. They would tie him up with fabric from the pink room and interrogate him, hitting him repeatedly and asking him where the money was. The couple who had came with them was terrified. They ran down the 40-foot ladder and into Avery's car only to realize it wouldn't start. So there they were, stuck. The couple came back in and Charles was trying to calm them down even while he was at gunpoint, since the girl was having a panic attack. Avery went into the house and saw Joseph in the kitchen. He told Joseph to leave, but when Joseph stood up, Avery shot him point blank, four times, in the face. The two dogs which were sleeping by the fireplace were also shot and killed. Avery would come back and get Charles. He dragged him to the main house, and that's where Charles would see Joseph and his two dogs dead. According to the girl who was with him, Charles would start to moan and speak in a different language. They sat him down on the couch and began to look for the money. 
Charles told them there was no money, but they did not believe him and kept looking. Charles would get up and walk over to Joseph's dead body because he simply wanted to be near him. Tony looked over and told him to go sit back down. If he tried that again, he would kill him. He stood up again and walked right back over to Joseph. He told them to go ahead and do it while staring at Tony with a gun. He then looked at Avery and said, I asked for this. West shot Scudder in the face at close range. Falling to his knees, Charles attempted to speak and stand. Tony fired again, sending the professor reeling backwards into the bookcase. Scudder gurgled out unintelligible sounds as Tony fired three more shots in Scudder's head. They then got everything they could from the house, including Charles's gold harp, which he played every morning. They would soon realize it was pretty much the only thing of value, and they couldn't even fit it into the car. They would then split up with the couple taking Avery's car, and Avery and Tony would take Charles's CJ5 Jeep with white pinnacles painted on the doors. Kinda hard to miss that. Fast forward to two days later when Charles and Joseph's bodies were found. They were only found because one of Charles's friends came to tell him about a relative who had died. His friends told police that when he approached the home, there were bullet holes in the windows and the door was wide open. They went inside and found the dead bodies and immediately went and got help. The investigation was soon started but wouldn't have too much effort poured into it. You see, because the house was riddled with dark artwork, pentagrams, macabre decor, it's all anyone could focus on. What really freaked them out was the painting they found that Charles had painted of himself. He had five bullets to the head and gagged, which is exactly how he died. So did he see his death beforehand? Is that what he meant when he told Avery? I asked for this, we will never know. It didn't take long for the case to garner more attention. By the time it had reached a national audience, Scudder and Odom were labeled as homosexual devil worshippers. Being reclusive made the victims easy targets for this kind of bigotry and hatred. Scudder had joined the Church of Satan to see what it was like, according to his friends, Raymond Williams. While inverted pentagrams are a common symbol in satanic imagery, the religion itself does not idolize Satan. Satanism, as practiced by the Church of Satan, does not worship a deity. They worship the self. The devil is used as a symbol of humankind's inner desires and is closely related to atheism. While the victim did possess some occult items and satanic artifacts, their religious beliefs did not affect their character. But still, people really only talked about that. They were said to be horrible people that did things you'd only see in horror movies. 
if you have an hour and 30 minutes to spare. I've listed a documentary about this case in the show notes. You can clearly see what kind of image they wanted to push on these two men. My favorite part is when the investigator refers to Joseph as Charles' live-in companion, like he was a golden retriever. Investigators had no idea who had done this, but they were about to find out from a witness. Teresa Hutchins would come to the police and explain to them in full detail about the events that took place that night. You can also see this interview in the documentary. She told them everything and mainly because they threatened to kill her as well and she knew they'd follow through if they weren't caught. Avery and Tony were on the run and were using Charles's Jeep. They swapped vehicles in Mississippi at a rest stop. They came across a car that belonged to Navy Lieutenant Kirby Phelps. Tony then took Kirby into the woods and killed him with two gunshots to the head. Now maybe they had a guilty conscience, but the two would later turn themselves in. Avery on December 20th and Tony on December 25th. Tony, however, felt no remorse. He had this to say. All I can say is, they were devils, and I killed them. That's how I feel about it. Tony and Avery's defense said they had been drugged with LSD, and that's why they ended up killing them. But according to investigators, LSD was found in the home, but it was too old to actually be used. They were both found guilty. Avery getting life and Tony getting death, which would later be overturned to three life sentences. Charles' remains were cremated and spread on the family plot, which is what his children wanted. Joseph's remains were spread over the Corpsewood Rose Garden. Now here we are in the present, and Corpsewood still stands. It's off a beaten path where the manor lays in ruins. I've taken you through the murder of these two men, but what if I told you that that wasn't the end of their story? What if I told you they are still at Corpsewood Manor? Yes, things are going to get even weirder. The paranormal side of the story would begin during the police investigation. Officers reported a feeling of being watched and a strange presence at Corpsewood. People who took souvenirs from the crime and housed home with them reported bad luck and felt the objects were cursed. Some say the objects would just disappear and reappear in random parts of the house. Even today, people visiting the site report shadows and apparitions believed to be Odom and Scudder. Gunshots, barking dogs and shattering glass, as well as haunting melodies played on Scudder's golden harp, have been heard there. After nightfall, some witnesses have claimed to see the glowing eyes of Beelzebub, one of Scudder's mastiffs, staring at them from the woods. Plenty of people who have visited Corpsewood over the last few years have also reported the feeling of being watched. It is said that if you go alone, you can hear the sound of someone walking behind you in the leaves. Is it Charles watching over his home? 
Why don't you take a trip there and report back to us? Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Remember, you can rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Every review helps. And for those of you that want to support the show, you can click on our link and support us at Anchor, or you can click on our Buy Me a Coffee link. If there's anything you'd like to hear on the show, or you want your story read, shoot me an email at notanotherhorrorpodcast at yahoo.com, and I'll get it onto the show. See you guys here next week. Remember, stay safe, stay sane, and be careful who you invite in.